0: I don't know if you guys know this, but the apostle John is known as the apostle whom Jesus loved, or he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, And so he is called the apostle of love. Now, this is not what you've heard people call themselves. Here I am, I'm the doctor of love, you know, I'm a romantic. But what he recognized and what really pushed John to be so faithful to the Lord was he recognized that he had been loved by Jesus like no one else had ever loved him. And so as he focuses on that, and he's a little bit more of a mystic than Paul is, who's very if this, then this, and very, you know, more like me. I'm very logic-driven, and yet as we read the book of, or the letter of 1 John to the church, remember that it's not this, then this, then this, and if this, then this. It's more along the lines of kind of poetic. So he kind of repeats the same things over and over again, which I've talked about before is kind of a good way to teach you any subject repetition. But also he's just reiterating these topics because you just can't get over these truths if you just read them in one verse and go, okay, that's true. God loves me. But how does he love me? And so John kind of reiterates, but then he develops the thought even deeper. And so in 1 John, he writes so that we may know. And he's writing that because there's a group that split away from the church. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus' people. And then they come back and go, you know, I'm glad that you guys know God, but here's a little deeper knowledge that you don't know yet that we're going to drop on you. And it made them feel like, well, maybe I don't really know God. And I've alluded to this, and I've said very specifically, the people many times that come and knock on your door and say, hey, we got a little bit deeper knowledge. You need to read our book. You know, whether it's the Book of Mormon or the, the extra books that the Jehovah's Witnesses have, the reality is they're peddling something that was not seen in the original as a canon of scripture that agrees with everything else. They have all these books for answering questions because they've got their own little pet doctrines. They're trying to kind of insert into your Bible. Essentially, what they're doing is they're hamstringing the Bible. They're bringing in things that don't agree. They're bringing in things that actually break down faith. They're cancer. And so John writes that you may know, to know by experience, um, to know through um, intuitive knowledge. And so in 1 John chapter 3, he continues on, having just described in chapter 2, he says in verse 26 of chapter 2, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. There will be those who will try to deceive you. He says, But the anointing which you have received from him remains or abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie. Doesn't that seem like he's being redundant? This thing that God has given you, and he's talking about his spirit living in you, gives you this intuitive knowledge as a believer, not a superpower, but kind of. He's given you the Holy Spirit that is kind of a check. You hear certain things, and they disagree with your very soul because you have the Holy Spirit but he says here, you know that they're true. He says, concerning all things, you, don't, you have the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and it's true, and it's not a lie. That's how Hebrews write. They say something, and then they reiterate it with an opposing truth to kind of box it in. It's true, which means it's also not a lie. To us, that's obvious, but to them, it re-emphasizes the same point. And just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. So as you are taught by the scriptures, as you are convicted by the Holy Spirit, as you believe these things, and as you learn to trust in them and live by them, he says, not only are you taught by them, but as a result, you will live by them. You will abide in them. And so as you abide in them, he says in verse 28, now little children abide in him. Now, if God's spirit is in you, you will abide in God. He says, but then in verse 28, he goes on to say, and now little children abide in God. Now, what's the case? Is God going to help me abide in him or am I going to have to make the decision? And I'm going to tell you right now that the Bible teaches both. Number one, God does it. Number two, I got to do it with him. He doesn't force me. He compels me by his love, but I have a choice to reject that love or to abide in it. But he says, now little children, and I want you to underline if you feel free to do that, underline children there, because we're going to talk about that today. He says, now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This righteousness, this righteous lifestyle is a family attribute. Many of you are from families, and there are certain things that because you are a part of that family, people will know. Not just your name, but also your character. Maybe your facial expression. Maybe your passion for some certain sport or some certain part of our community. But everyone knows that you're part of that family because you resemble that family. And so he's going to go on to say that that same thing is true for the body of Christ, for specifically for Jesus' followers. So in verse 1 through 3, he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us So he says in chapter 2, verse 28, he says, Abide in him that when he appears, we can have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. And then if you go down to verse 3, in chapter 3, he says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we want to be righteous. We want to be right with God when he appears. And Jesus said, and his disciples also taught that when he appears, it will happen in the blink of an eye, and it will happen at an hour that we do not expect, like a thief in the night. And so here we have him saying, behold. Behold is that idea when you watch Lion King, okay? So in that opening scene, you have all these animals. They're, they're going to whatever that rock is called. And as they're walking up to, is it Providence Rock? Pride, pride Rock. Oh, that's great. That's a, whew, let's walk up to Pride Rock. But as they're walking up, they're seeing their pride and joy. The pride is that, that, that kingdom that rules over them, the, the lion. And as he has a descendant, a son, this son is being lifted up and they're all looking at them. Now, I'm not trying to teach you about Jesus and Lion King. You might be able to find some stuff, but I think that it's coincidental. But my point is, when, he, they, when the, the monkey, the crazy monkey, holds up Simba, they all look to him, they are beholding the sun, right? They're looking up there and they're seeing, here's this sun. And they all what? They all get excited and they start making their noises and they all bow down in reverence. My point has nothing to do with that other than the word behold. It's what we do when we have our first child and many of us, our second child, our third time, whatever. We, we look at them, we go, wow, look at this child. Look, it's made in it my image. It's got your nose and it's got my ears and look, oh great, it's got my hairline, good grief. But we behold, we look at, we gaze upon I think sometimes we miss out on beholding the God that has bestowed love upon us. Specifically in this chapter, it's saying, Behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon you and I. Behold, a son is born, a child is given, and on his shoulders will be placed the the government and the authority and the power and the wisdom but this same God, behold the manner of love which, which, with which we have been loved. Have you ever considered the love of God and just looked at it and been like, "Oh my goodness, I cannot believe someone loves me like this." I think that we oftentimes don't, not because we don't care, but because we 've kind of taken it for granted. Of course, God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me, so we sing it all the time, but sometimes with the kids, I have to stop amid song and go, what does that mean? And so he says here, behold what manner of love. That phrase, what manner, I looked it up. It means what kind of love. Consider the kind of love that God has bestowed upon us, specifically the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. So what kind of love is that? Well, I have there for you on the screen, adoption. What kind of love can someone show you when you are not their child and yet we are called their child? It's adoption. And I looked it up on the Googles. It means the action of legally taking another's child and bringing it up as one's own. God has bestowed that kind of love on you. Now, Some of you have been touched in one form or another by adoptive love. And as Kelly and I have considered adopting, we've considered fostering. We've gone through the classes just to foster, just to foster. And what we recognize is that it it comes with a cost. Anyone who's going to adopt somebody, it comes at an expensive cost. Now, there's ways in the state where you don't have to spend as much money, but it still costs you time and effort and expense and, and craziness coming into your house and whatever else comes along with it. But if you want to go the adoptive route where it costs money, it costs up to 20 or 30 grand. And if you want to adopt overseas, jack that up a couple, 10 grand. Not including flights and, and red tape and everything that goes along with that. And I don't think that that's coincidence. I think that's because adoption Making someone legally your child, your responsibility, costs a lot. And for God, it costs him the life of his son. Laying down his life, spilling his righteous blood, letting murderers kill his son, taking on the sin of the world so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. It blows me away making possible what Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17 says. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, if you go to a Middle Eastern country and you see a little child saying, Abba or Baba, what they're saying is, Daddy. And he says in verse 16, "...the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him." So we are not only sons and daughters, but we have the full rights as sons and daughters, as heirs. Not just heirs with any firstborn, that'd be great in any family, but heirs with the firstborn, Jesus Christ. The name among names that, at at the mentioning of this name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. We're heirs with that guy. Wow. So here we have it, this adoption we're his children, so as a result of being his children, we'll become like him as our children become like us. Any child that's raised by a parent or a set of parents becomes like them in the foolish ways and in the good ways, in the righteous ways and in the goofy ways, in the unrighteous ways. And so what is he like? That's my question. What is he like? He's pure. So, any person under his influence, what John is making the point in saying, will become more and more like him in purity. Oftentimes, we look at our own children. They're like us, they look like us, they say the same things as us. But those are all external. We don't know what our God looks like, do we? Think about this every nation that they drove out of the land of Canaan in the Old Testament they had temples just like the Jews did. And in those temples, you would walk in and you would see their God with your eyes. You would see their faces. You would see uh, th- what they looked like, the image they'd been carved in, the material they were made out of. You would see what they were about. If they were, had war instruments, they were gods of war. If they were gods of fishermen, and many times their gods would be fish. And so my point is, we become like the God that we serve. And in Psalm chapter 115, or rather in Psalm 115, the psalmist writes this. And what the other nations said about the God of Israel and the people of Israel, they said, Who is their God and what is he like? We can't see him like we can see ours. Because if you were from another nation and you were able to get past, the, the different courts, and you could go into the Holy of Holies and you walk into the, the Holy of Holies in the temple of God, what would you see? Would you see their God? No. You would see worship instruments. All, that's what you would see. You, when we come into worship, we don't have an idol sitting on the stage. We do have a cross, but we don't worship the cross. We worship Jesus. We remember the cross for what it was, a death instrument to make the, it's the altar upon which our sacrifice was made. And so in Psalm 115, in verse 2, it says, Why should the Gentiles say, where is their God? We can't see Him. We can't touch Him. We can't smell Him. We can't taste Him. Whatever. But verse 3 says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. And then he contrasts. He says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. They're dead. They can't feel. They can't smell. They can't speak. But our God is alive. Now, the Bible speaks of him having ears to hear. The Bible speaks of him having nostrils that smell the sweet-smelling aroma of our offering of sacrifice. But, and he speaks, but he doesn't have a mouth. Our God is spirit, and he is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And so our God is not dead, but he is alive and he does speak, and he is living, he is breathing, he is moving, and he wants to be involved in our lives. Here's the deal. If we follow our living God, what this scripture tells us is that we will become like our God, fully alive in the Spirit and in truth. So back in 1 John, in verse 3, it says, everyone who has this hope that we've been adopted, that he's been revealed, and that one day we will be like him when he is revealed, and we will see him as he is on the other side of the curtain, if you will. But everyone who has this hope, and this hope is in Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. We become more like him and less like us. So in verse 4, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. The idea is that whoever abides in him does not make a practice of sin. Their life, little by little, God eradicates the desire and then the practice. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So John, in his writings, would question, if you continue in sin, have you ever even seen Jesus? And, and moron, do you actually, not moron, more so, that's not what he's saying, more so, more so ever. I'm trying to piece together words here. Give me a break. I went to Farmington. Hey, you guys didn't have to laugh at that so hard. (laughs) Whoever sins has neither neither seen him nor known him. And more so, you know, I would question if you have a lifestyle of sin and you're comfortable in it, I would question whether or not you've seen him and if you have fellowship with him. Because if we have fellowship with God, it's a purifying fellowship. It's a purifying relationship. 1 Corinthians 15 says that bad company corrupts good morals. But I think that the inverse is also true. We have fellowship with God. We have good company. We have holy company. company, Then it should also purify. It should have a purifying effect on our lives. Verse 7, he says, Little children, he uses this phrase over and over again. He's reminding you, you've been made sons and daughters of God. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed or manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So we beheld the manner, the kind of love that the Father has bestowed upon us. He then goes on to say, behold the evidence of the Son's work in your life. Jesus was manifested for what purpose? One of the many purposes is to take away our sin. So to remain in our sin completely debunks the purpose of the gospel in the first place. And in John chapter 16, he speaks to this, that the Spirit of God was sent into the world to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the coming judgment. And in Romans chapter 6, so I don't misquote it, in verse 6, this is what it says. We'll start in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of Jesus' death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this that the, our old man was crucified with Christ. That's what baptism is. It's a picture of the old life being buried with Christ as Christ was buried, and then the resurrection with Christ as a new creation in Christ. And though practically there's stuff that still has to be worked out, spiritually and positionally, it's already been done. He says, our old man was crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, so death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God." He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so in Jesus, there is no sin. Purity, again, is a family trait. It's a family tradition, except it becomes an attribute. It's not tradition so much as it is our habit. It is our lifestyle it is the fruit produced in the Spirit-filled life. And based on this characteristic, we know who Jesus' Father is because of His holiness. He, he, he looks like His Father. So my question is, who is your Father? Or more broadly, who is our Father? How can we know we are of the Father that we think that we are? In verse 8, He's basically saying that the sons of the devil continue in and they practice sin. He's sinned from the beginning. He's rebelled against God. He's lived in lawlessness. But in verse 9, we can know that we're sons of God because we do not practice or continue in sin. And Jesus had to teach this to the most religious group of his time. He taught it to the Pharisees. So turn to John 8. John chapter 8, there was a question of fatherhood. They even questioned Jesus' fatherhood. John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Doesn't that sound like what John's been saying? you abide in me and I in you and I in the Father and this big weaving of protection, this big weaving of being inside of God's grace. You are my disciples indeed if you abide in me and you shall know the truth and the truth shall actually set you free. So they heard him and they answered him, well, we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage to anyone. They're thinking about being slaves in Egypt. They're thinking about the fact that the, the family of God, this, this nation that God's risen up, they, we've not been slaves. We're free. We can worship God. And he says, how can you say you will be made free? They're questioning Jesus about this. And Jesus answered them in verse 34. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever but a son does. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you'll actually be free. You'll actually be free indeed. So in verse 37, he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you've seen with your father. Now he's contrasting, right? He says, I speak what I've seen from my father and you do what your father does. And they answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. They just said that. They're going, no, no, no. Uh, We do what Abraham says. And Jesus said to them, well, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. Abraham was a child of the law. He wouldn't murder. He says, but you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Think about this. How could Abraham not seek to kill Jesus? Well, there's this interesting passage in Genesis, and it's a passage where three men come to meet with Abraham, and Abraham sets a table before them. And as he does this, Abraham tithes to this man. Go back and dig into Genesis and read about the king called Melchizedek, and you'll see that he was a priest forever in the likeness of Jesus. Some people believe it was Jesus. Some people believe that it was a priesthood before the Levitical priesthood, and it's all talked about in Hebrews. But Abraham was approached by these three men. Many believe it's a picture of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they dined with Abraham, and Abraham didn't reject them and try to kill them. He actually worshiped, it says. So that said, uh, just an interesting thought as I'm looking through this. He says, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then they get a little dig in on Jesus. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, and that's God. Now think about the Christmas story they're still holding against him the fact that he didn't have a dad. He didn't have a married dad. They're calling him, forgive me, a bastard, the son of God. They're calling him that because they're claiming, we know who our father is, who's yours, Jesus. They're questioning his deity. And so Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. (laughs) Checkmate, right? (laughs) You can call me what you want, but I know whose father you are based on your deeds. And so he says, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God." And so he's trying to explain to them, you know who your father is based on what you listen to, based on what you practice. Uh, Jesus taught this to the Pharisees, and I believe today we need to be careful that we don't shake our fingers at the Pharisees, but say, you know, do I respond to Jesus the same way? Because I think it's easy to do. But he says back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. God's seed remains in you. And because God's seed remains in you, you cannot sin because he has been born of God. This person or you has been born of the Holy Spirit. That's the seed of God. The seed of God is the word of God. And the word of God in the human heart with the Holy Spirit giving understanding creates this purity and this holiness and causes a hatred for sin. The fear of God makes you hate sin. And so because he has been born of God. So interestingly enough, if you turn over just to the left a little bit, God's seed in you is incorruptible. And Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. Peter writes there, Since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, there's that word again, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides in you forever. The word of God planted in your heart causes you to be righteous, but it also builds in you a love for the brethren, a love for other Jesus followers. So he says, therefore, in verse 10 of 1 John 3, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another And then he says, "...not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you." And we just read that passage in John 8. The world hated Jesus. They called him all sorts of things. He says, "...don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you." We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death, and whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Children of God practice righteousness. We talked about that. And the righteous will love one another. John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. I put there for you the MMV version. Mike Mingi version. He says this, love one another as I have loved you. That's the imperative. Not love one another, but love one another like I have loved you. That's how it always makes it the right kind of love. This will prove that you are my disciples. This will be proof to the world that we're disciples of Jesus if we love one another. John 15 verse 12 says the same thing love one another. How? As I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, the righteous are persecuted for living righteous. And he gives an example of how not to love one another. And the example is from Cain and Abel, the first murder in the Bible. Cain and Abel were brothers, sibling rivalry for the first time ever. And Cain killed Abel. Why? It says here, because his works were righteous. Whose? Abel's. Cain and Abel come to make this sacrifice, Genesis 4, 1 through 12. And as they go to make a sacrifice, Cain says, I'm not given an animal. I know that's the prescribed way, but I'm a farmer. I make plants. I'm going to offer that. And God wouldn't accept it. And so Cain gets jealous, he gets angry. Now, he's angry because his brother's works are offered up and they're accepted. And so he gets mad at God. He gets mad at Abel. And so he hates his brother, which Matthew chapter 5 says, if you hate someone within your heart, that that's murder. How do I know that? Because Genesis says that Cain hated his brother. And what did that lead to? The fruit of hatred is death the fruit of sin? Is death, and Hebrews eleven four talks about it. Jude chapter eleven talks about it. But the point is, is that Cain killed Abel. Why? Because his works were evil. Cain killed Abel because his works were evil. Was that Abel's fault? No. The people that killed Jesus killed Jesus because Jesus's works were righteous and their works were what? Evil. That's how it always goes. Now, you might say, I've never murdered anyone. But what it says in verse 15 of chapter 3 of First John, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. How do I know if I don't have eternal life abiding in me? If I hate my brethren. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26, he talks about it. That hatred in our heart is actually murder. You don't have to do the deed to murder someone. It starts in our heart. God cares more about your heart than he does your actions. Because he knows, and he's teaching us, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of our hearts comes all kinds of wickedness and vileness and sin. And so, as we're beholding the love of God, I want to take just the last minute or two and reflect upon Cain. I picked these pictures very clearly for a reason. On the left-hand side, you have Cain raising up to kill Abel. On the right-hand side, we have the the you know that basically the Jewish people, the Romans everyone in the whole world killing Jesus, nailing him to the cross. Cain saw his brother's righteousness and hated him. So he used his power to kill him. Why? Because Abel was a reminder to him that he was unrighteous. So you can either, in your unrighteousness, kill those who are righteous so that you can raise yourself up, or Jesus saw us in our unrighteousness. He loved us. He used his power to take our death sentence to give us life through his death so that we could have peace with God and be adopted as sons and daughters. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 says what? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How do I know if I'm God's? Are you a peacemaker? And I wrote down this morning as I was spending some time kind of looking through my notes, uh, the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James 3.18. And so, children of God, behold this love. And I love this too because he says here, verse 16, 1 John 3, By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for the brethren. What he loves we should love and that should show in our actions, in our deeds, in our words. And so as we get ready to take communion this morning, it's just a reminder of the sacrifice made on our behalf. It's a reminder of the life-giving body and blood of Christ that we get to sit down at the table and have fellowship with God, not just because he's made us redeemed children, but because we are his children. That's why we get to eat at his table. And who brings the meal? God does. The father lays out the meal and says, take, eat. This is my son's body broken, and poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And because of this fellowship meal, we think of potlucks. We think of like bringing in all the carbs. And those are great, by the way. Had one this week with another church family. But the reality is true fellowship comes through death and burial and resurrection. And we get to live in this death through dying to ourselves, picking up our own death, picking up the body of Christ poured into us and living no longer for what we think is good, no longer for what we feel like is the thing we want to do, but now letting the life of the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, live through us. And it all happens, this love, because God so loved. The manner of love was a sacrificial love. And you know, you look at guys like the Apostle Paul, And you look at guys like the Apostle John and you go, man, how were they so bold? How were they so willing to die for what they believed in? And I think it comes down to simply they remembered how much they had been loved and what manner of love they'd been shown. The rest became a response of the love that they'd been shown. I don't know about you guys, but um, lately I've been feeling the love. I've been loved a lot and it makes it so much easier to be able to love in return. I don't love you guys because you're lovable, but it does make it easier. You know, people don't love me because I'm lovable. How about I turn it back on me? But but the reality is when someone loves you, it makes it really easy to return that love. And um, Jesus never fails to love us in ways that we don't deserve. It's overwhelming. So Father, as we get ready to... Uh, Continue this practice of communion, we thank you for making it possible. I thank you that you have laid down your life for the brethren, and I thank you for the opportunity to practice that as I grow in understanding the manner with which I've been loved. I pray that each one here recognizes that you love them specifically in the same way, that your love is far reaching. Not only that you died for us, but that you have ears and you hear our prayers. You have hands and you're involved in our lives. You get dirty. You came to us, took on physical flesh so that you could relate with us. And now you live to intercede at the right hand of God the Father, praying for us, knowing that what we're going through is not easy. From experiencing the harshness of this world. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that as we learn, as we continue to revel in that love you've shown us, that, Lord, we'd just be able to behold that this morning. I'm not asking you to show us anything new. Show us the love that you've shown us and help us just to marvel at that. As we have this meal, Lord, remind us of the ways that you've shown us grace over the years bring back to us the joy of your salvation. What was it like when we first realized that you loved us? And as we marvel at that grace, as we marvel at your compassion, as we marvel at your undeserved work in our lives, your forgiveness that's so free and overwhelming, Lord, would we celebrate that? Would we give thanks to you once again in a very special way? Would you Free our lips so that we can praise you for all that you are. Not what you're going to give us. Not the things you're going to bring us through. Just for who you are. You are so good. As we take communion, Lord, um, give us the ability to think about these things. And give us the ability to take this meal together. And so, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, as you feel led, come up and get the elements. Um, Somebody make sure Jesse gets um, some. But also, uh, they're going to be taking communion downstairs separately for those who are believers. Um, And I want you to feel free while we're playing the song to take it on your own. Um, But we're also going to take a moment to take it up here. And so um, after that, we'll close with one more song. But I just want you and Jesus to have some real time, some real talk. And if there's things that you need to uh, surrender to Him, there's things that you need to confess to Him, please do that. You'll enjoy the cross and what God's done for you even more than you would if you just held it in. So be free to worship Him during this time.